You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. There are many topics I've not spent a lot of my life researching, but recently I've become intrigued by the mysterious stories of archaeological evidence of giants, little people, and astronomical time-keeping locations in America. Dennis Stone joins us for a wonderful journey to the Stonehenge of Salem, New Hampshire. Built by a Native American culture or a migrant European population, no one knows for sure. A maze of man-made chambers, walls, and ceremonial meeting places, America's Stonehenge is most likely the oldest man-made construction in the United States, over 4,000 years old. Like Stonehenge in England, America's Stonehenge was built by ancient people well-versed in astronomy and stone construction. It has been ter- determined that the site is an accurate astronomical calendar. It was and still can be used to determine specific solar and lunar events of the year, like the upcoming winter solstice. Various inscriptions have been found throughout the site, which we'll discuss, and some of those by Dac- Dr. Barry Fell, who we've joined on 21st Century Radio and the past are detailed in his book, America B.C. Here to explore this fascinating location in America is a man who spends much of his life not only caretaking the location, but assuring its place in history. Thank you so much for joining us, Dennis. Oh, thank you so much for having me on this evening. I really appreciate that. Well, I love the photos you've been sending this week of the progression of the sun as we move towards the winter solstice. But before we talk about those, share with our audience and me a little bit about how you got involved with this mysterious antiquity site. Well, actually, it starts back in 1955. It was actually my dad, Robert Stone, and he had first heard about this on a, uh, believe it or not, a radio show, just like we're doing right now. And it was on a Friday night. It was on one of the large uh, AM stations out of Boston. And uh, the, the talk show host was actually discussing this whole thing about these stone ruins. And my dad only lived eight miles away from this place and had never, ever heard of the place. So it was quite amazing to him that this kind of place existed almost in his backyard. And yet he had never heard about it. And um, just a short time later, he was at a barber shop waiting to have his hair cut. And he picked up a magazine. It was a three-year-old magazine from 1952. It, uh, the name of the magazine was New Hampshire Profiles, and uh, the magazine had a whole feature about the same site that had been on the radio show that week. So it really got my dad's interest and excitement. And a short time later, he actually went down and visited the site. It turns out my aunt and uncle had been at this place about 20 years pr- prior to that, back in the 1930s. And they had come down to the museum on their bicycles. They rode about roughly 10 miles down to see the place and picnicked up there, and they... Uh, when my dad they had mentioned it to him, they said, I think we can find it. So next week when they actually went down, my dad saw the place for the first time. So I've been involved since I was basically uh, about one year old. So that kind of dates me, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, my, my age. We're, <laughs> we're in that 1954 group, Dennis. You know, we're the cream of the crop. I tell everybody yeah, that. You Every place. That, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that, too. Yeah. Well, there's something well, interesting about the 1954 group, but we'll leave that for another time. But now I'm <laughs> glad to hear we're in the same soul class. Exactly, yeah, so 1954, yeah, and uh, so it's been about 60, what, 61 years now that my family's been involved with it. So How fascinating. Yeah. And it's not small, you know, sometimes people think of these stone structures as little tiny circles that are 12 feet wide, And but we're talking about, as you describe, an acre of stone structures surrounded by a 12-acre calendar. I mean, that's enormous. 
Mm, yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah, it actually covers a good size of the hill. And some of the stones from the main site, we're actually observing from about five or 600 feet away. So that it does cover a pretty large area, actually. Uh, so definitely megalithic. So what is the earliest evidence that this hill, I guess one could say the hill, is that the right way to describe it, has yep. been utilized? Yeah, we call it the hill just for a nickname. Uh, like, you know, the family says that, and friends, we're going to go up to the hill today. We're working at the hill today. So. Okay. But it is a hill. So we're all in the family tonight, and we'll just talk about the hill. Yeah, we'll talk about the hill. <laughs> but uh, it's about 110 acres. Uh, the main site, like you mentioned, is about an acre, and that's surrounded by just under uh, well, roughly about a dozen acres of uh, walls with the standing stones that were aligned with the sun, moon, and stars. And um, when my dad first got involved with it, we were not aware at all of the astronomy. We knew there were stone walls surrounding the main site, but the main focus was on the main site, that one-acre area with about 19 stone features, structures and underground drains, carvings. Uh, we have a plaza area, a ramp area, and, uh, of course, the stone structures themselves. But the walls were known about, but nobody really paid as much attention to the walls. And today there's actually thousands of feet of walls that surround the, the main site and out beyond the alignments, which we think are as, actually as important as the main site is. We have walls that are just recognize that have kind of a serpentine shape to them. We've got about six of them up there. We've been walking by them for years and never realized that these might be um, effigy walls, you know, shaped by big snakes or big serpents, and some run about 30 feet, some run a couple hundred feet, and they kind of they go back and forth in a serpentine-type fashion. Um, and if this is the only site with them. You might say it's just a coincidence, but there's sites in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and just north of New York City. They have these walls that are being found on there that have the serpentine shape to them. They usually have a stone head, and then they'll go, you know, a few dozen feet or a couple hundred feet, and they'll be either straight or serpentine in shape, and then they stop. And so uh, not too much unlike the serpent mound in Ohio, but that's made out of earth. So it's similar to that but made out of stone. Mm-hmm. And and when you look at the site, I mean, you commented just now that, you know, some areas you weren't even aware of even though you are, were walking the hill, et cetera. Um, is there an indication of like an expansion over time that this was built over a period of time that maybe it started as a small ceremonial center and then expanded into a living arena? I mean, so far, what do people say about its use? Yeah, there are a lot of different opinions about how the site was actually built. Um, and that's a very, very good question. We haven't been able to answer that completely, but uh, it does look like it might have been a couple of different stages of construction, actually, going back early in time. And it might have uh, actually been the stone walls that were built possibly before the main site. And they were building some of these um, walls that have, like I see the serpentine kind of shape. We have effigy stones that are shaped like different animals. And these walls also have, like, a lacework design to them. They have niches and windows built right into these stone walls. And they built out of large slabs of stone or fractured stone. They're not just the normal field stones that the um, colonial, colonial and post-colonial uh, forefathers built. You know, these, these stones were actually taken off the bedrock, and some of them weighed, you know, several tons. And because some of them were stood on end, and now we know that they're astronomically aligned. But it does appear that the, uh, astronomically, we think that they had an older astronomical center. And this came up in the 1970s, and we had a number of visitors from England uh, some of these people have been on, like, History Channel. Or, you know, they do a lot with the hockey or astronomy. And two different gentlemen from England came over a year apart and had the same uh, thought when they saw the site after, you know, walking around. They said, I think you have an earlier stage of development here with the astronomical alignments and the constructions, and it looks like a later. 
And this same thing was talked about in the mid-1970s by some of the researchers, so it's pretty interesting to hear people 40 years apart coming with sort of a similar idea because of the way the site is actually designed, you know. So, um, But we have about 30 large quarried stones we found over the last, uh, since 1978, basically. These big slabs are laying all over the hilltop. They've actually been removed from the bedrock. They've been propped up. And then they started shaping them using um, a technique called percussion flaking. It's like shaping a... Uh, you know, a couple-ton arrowhead with a stone hammer striking the surface of the stone and actually shaping or dressing the stones. So it's a Stone Age technology, and it looks like they had a much bigger project or a much bigger um, site they were building, and then they walked away from it. This year alone, we found about six more of these large crop stones and probably been going by them for years and never even recognized them for what they were. Well, so we well before you go, before you pass those mm-hmm. points, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're sharing a great deal of information with us very quickly. And for some of us, unlike Dr. Bob, who has been studying this particular <laughs> arena for his yeah. whole life, it's fascinated him. And I really didn't take much interest in it. And I went, yeah, well, of course, there was archaeoastronomy. And of course, the ancients understood the stars. <laughs> and all you have to do is go to elder lore and you see that every community planet-wide understood the solstice and the equinox. If it wasn't through the sighting of the Pleiades, it was through Sirius. Or, you know, it's it's not that any culture prior to us was unaware of mm-hmm. the procession of the equinox and this 26,000, 27,000, you know, year cycle that we're talking about, you know, when you've got this wobbling earth making its path. And because I, I looked at one of the interesting things I noted in the discussion of this particular site is the star Thuban in the constellation of Draco. And I came across this in my own research that, you know, it was like prominent around 3000 BC when the sage kings came to China. And it's so interesting because it shows up in some of the native lore of the Ice Age animals being important at that time. So if we're going back 4,000 years or so, um, was this a like pilgrimage destination if it seems that it was you know, built over time and expanded on over time? It is a very large complex. In fact, there are other ones in the Northeast. Uh, they go from... Uh, uh, up in Maine and actually into Nova Scotia, going down into uh, in Quebec too, going down into the mid-Atlantic states where these stone constructions in the highest density is right in the uh, Hudson Valley, uh, Putnam County, Westchester County of New York, and going across the river into Connecticut. There's literally hundreds and hundreds of these stone structures, uh, standing stones, you know, monoliths, chambers, uh, dolmens, and walls. Uh, but I say it's pretty big. As far as one site, it's probably the biggest by itself anywhere. And that thought always crosses our mind because there seems to be a couple of um, possible sacred ways. Uh, there are double-walled paths that seem to have been used as kind of like a processional path. We think the site was probably a place of worship. We don't think it was a habitat site. We think people lived elsewhere, and they came on top of the hill for worshiping purposes, up high near the heavens. Um, and a lot of archaeological evidence coming out of the site. We have found a lot of stone tools, um, but it's not as... Um, well, if it's a place where people live, you find a lot of, you know, their, uh, basically their garbage that they threw away. And this site, like most of the megalithic sites in Europe, are about 50,000, uh, archaeologically fairly clean. So it probably was a place where people came up on weddings, perhaps. Uh, there are a couple chambers that may have been burial chambers, so maybe on funerals. And then the solstices, as you mentioned, the equinoxes, and we have the cross-quarter days, and then we have the, uh, the lunar cycle, the 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle, uh, with, with the marker stones. And so on those particular days, those events, I'm sure they would have had celebrations up there. 
but I don't think it's a place where people normally live. At least the original builders. Maybe later in time, uh, other people may have occupied the area on top of the hill. But I think it was more of a sacred hill originally. Mm-hmm. And. I know that in some of the descriptions it was treeless, which, you know, we often think of these prehistoric worship centers as being in the bounty of the woodlands. And, you know, you watch everybody prancing around. I mean, there's sort of this mythological image of, you know, Avalon with all of nature. But so describe for us, if you can, as best you can. And for those who are interested, you can go to www.stonehengeusa.com. And I know you have tours and we'll talk about that and some llamas and snowshoeing. Sounds like a great place, www.stonehengeusa.com. But why was it treeless? You know, you often think of um, worship as being so important in terms of the enrichment that nature offers. Yeah, um, well, we Stonehenge in England actually is on a pretty open plain today, but if you go back 5,000 years ago when they started Stonehenge, I guess stage one, uh, it was a pretty... Uh, forested area. So they had actually had a forest problem in Stonehenge, and they must have consumed a lot of the trees for cremation, for building the structures, and mm-hmm. also for building their homes. Our hill was cleaned by the glaciers. You know, the four glacial periods pretty much cleaned off the hill in the last million years, the last glacial period being the Wisconsin. And so we did about 100 shovel test pits in the 1990s. We had the president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. She began working with us in 1989, and she actually still working up there. She's getting you know, she's getting along in the years, but she's uh, she's very, very active, and she's um, in Florida right now, which is nice because it's turning very cold up here. She's down there for the winter, but she'll be back next spring doing more work on the site. But in the mid-90s, she decided to do a, a mapping the whole hilltop, and they did about one shovel test pit per acre. And her husband was a doctor of geology from Tufts University. He was here for 30 years, so she had a good geological background and his help when she needed it. And she found out geologically the hilltop was about 75% bare, 25% covered with forest and glacial soil and soils um, at that time. So they had a nice clear horizon for the alignments, and they also could work the hilltop pouring these stones off. You know, these stones I mentioned before, they didn't have all the soil covering the bedrock, you know, so they just had to go out and scout. But they likely had a quarry nearby, so then you have to sort of wonder what role might water have played. Right. Uh, water uh, seems to be a very important part to ancient people. It was something spiritual to them. We do have two wells on the site, two man-made wells, and we have a swamp, actually a couple of swamps, but one of them is pretty close to the site. So a lot of these sites in New England seem to be tied into swamps, too. And we know that, in fact, Native Americans are very, very much into swamps and wetlands, too. You know, they often ran some of these chambers right down to the edge of these, these swamps, and one of them is right by the lower well. But the hilltop was pretty bare, and they also created a whole network of underground drains to keep the bedrock dry. So they didn't have the soil and vegetation back then, so when it rained and the snow melted, they had to channel the water. So we have all these drains. Some of them run 75 feet to keep the whole main site dry, which is kind of a unique feature. Some well, even before you pass that, it, it, it even yeah. reminds me of the the rainwater um, way in which it was purified to become drinking water, and they would run it underground and over glacial rock. And wonder if any of that was going on, that it was actually ritual water. I mean, I'm just conjecting here. I know nothing about this, truthfully. But in my mind's going, oh, yeah, of course that's what they did. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. That might have been part of the purpose. When people see the drains, they wonder if it was more than just a practical use for the drains. Maybe it's something more spiritual. Uh, they do work. They do function very well. Even today, even though they have some soil that have clogged up some of them, the water still seeps through the soil and these drains still work, but it might have been something like that, like the holy water or something like that, mm-hmm. particularly the two wells, you know. 
that might have been more spiritual. And people have been up there dowsing. You know, we had the, the, the um, Dowsing Society of America, I think they're based in Vermont. They've been down several times, you know, doing dowsing for, they think the water is underneath the bedrock, you know, and these people are actually building walls in relationship to some of these aquifers. To the water lanes. You know, and it's interesting because it also sits on an earthquake fault line, which we find with a number of sites. And so you often wonder about the power of the ley line, you know, when people are sensitive to these things as shamanistic cultures have always been, they come into total harmony with the energetics of the land that they're standing on and then place things based on the power of those underground currents. Exactly, like tarns or structures and put pieces of quartz on them, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're kind of something that will attract energy. Some people think from the universe, from the stars, sun and moon, the energy will go into the courts and these places. Well, there's there's no doubt that they, you know, that they did align with the stars. So there was something about understanding and appreciating pulling down cosmic energy, if not just for ceremony, also into the soil, into the people that are present. We're going to take our first break and then we'll be back. Our guest is Dennis Stone. You can learn more at www.stonehengeusa.com. And before we go too much further into the show, Dennis, I wanted to um, take the opportunity to invite those of our listeners who are north of Maryland and who are up in New Hampshire or go up there because you all have a a really wonderful visitor center. You're open daily year-round from 9 to 5 p.m. except for Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's some enduring schedule. Oh, yes, yeah. They are open every day except for those two days, and we do have the uh, winter solstice. I think the weather's looking favorable at this moment, but in New England, you never can tell. It changes in a heartbeat, actually. Like today, we had a rain-snow mix, so it's kind of messy, but... Uh, yep, so we open uh, Wednesday for the sunrise and sunset on the uh, on the shortest day of the year. That's lovely, and you invite people, you know, to come snowshoeing in the 105 acres of woodlands and wildlife, all ages, and you also have llamas. Is that something that your family does, is raise llamas? Well, we uh, started that around 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2002, so 14 years ago. My son was uh, about 12 years old at the time, and he uh, took an interest in these animals, and they're actually the cousins of the llamas, of the alpacas. They're a little bit smaller than the llama, but the mm-hmm. same family, and they're all part of the camel family, but... Uh, we have seven of them up there, and people love to look at them, and we uh, share them. We take their fiber, send it out to Connecticut, had it made into yarn, and then uh, people can knit it. You know, we get the little bundles back. Right. Uh, and uh, But uh, they're kind of historic, too, because their ancestors are part of the uh, North American camel, and they were here for 45 million years, which I never knew before this. I thought camels were from Asia and Africa and llamas and alpacas were South America originally, but they uh, they actually started in North America, and the last of them died out about 8,000 years ago. So all the camels of the world, the llamas, alpacas, vicuna, guanaco, were all part of that North American camel family, and they, they were from the United States, part of Canada and Mexico, so they're actually native to this continent originally, you know. So, How interesting. That, yeah, that's yeah, so that's fascinating. Cool, yeah. You know, because yeah, I always yeah. wondered why all of a sudden it's sort of like <laughs> llamas and pacas took the nation by storm, and all these people yeah. were raising them. Well, now it yeah. makes a little bit more sense sort of like a return to our roots. You know, speaking of roots, what evidence is there of um, this particular site in Salem, New Hampshire, of there having been Native Americans? Or is, or are we talking about, I mean, 4,000 years ago there were Native Americans, but there were also megalithic European visitors. Right. You know, there's three theories of who built the site, um, that it was built either by Native Americans, Old World visitors, or that it was built during a colonial, post-colonial time by some of our forefathers. Uh, so those are three main theories. Uh, there's other theories, too. But um, Native Americans are in New Hampshire um, going back 
In fact, I was talking to the archaeologist that's been with us, and she, she's actually um, worked on a lot of these paleo sites, and they go back uh, between ten to 12,000 years. So in New Hampshire, we had people actually here that early in time, right after the glacial period, almost 12,000 years ago. Um, and on our hilltop, we have a cliff shelter where we found pottery during the 1950s. So as a glacial cliff shelter, it's about maybe 1,000 feet from the main site. It's still on our property. And it's overlooking uh, a river called the Spigot River, which is actually a tributary of the Merrimack, which is one of the largest rivers in New England and actually goes out to the ocean. So we have Native Americans living on the west side of the site. And during the shovel test pit study in the 1990s, I believe that was about a six-year study, they found a wigwam site very close to our visitor center uh, down by the parking lot. It was about 30 feet across, and they found two fire pits. They carbon dated the charcoal, and it dated 2,000 years old and 1,700 years old, and they even had grease in the soil that didn't biodegrade, you know. It's stayed in the soil all these years, and that could be carbon dated, too, but they didn't have the funds to do that, do the, the gritty um, the oil or the grease, whatever it was, but um, a cooking rack. So we know Native Americans were around the hilltop, and we have found some of the um, artifacts from Native Americans. And but that doesn't the mean that they built it, you know, because a site right, can be right. used by one civilization, and as they die off or migrate somewhere else, another one who's born there uses the prior, you know, civilization's building for other uses. Um, so, you know, one of the questions people often ask when you become a steward of these extraordinary megalithic um, archaeological destinations is, you mentioned that the site is on an earthquake fault, and then I was reading in the literature that sometimes the earthquakes have actually caused damage to some of the chambers, and then you all have rebuilt them. How do you know how to rebuild them so that they're actually in keeping with the style of these megaliths? Well, we had some damage. Uh, every year they have earth tremors up here, from, or they're actually earthquakes, but minor ones, and that's from the results of the glacier, you know, uh, when the glacier was here, the last one was about a mile deep, and it pushed the land down here between a quarter and a half a mile. So even though the glaciers have been gone over 12,000 years, uh, the earth is still rebounding. So it causes damage. And in 1992, there was kind of a, uh, a, a stronger one. It actually caused damage to one of the chambers in what we call the paddy area. And it actually cracked a couple of the rocks, and we really didn't have to rebuild that. But there was another structure uh, called the South Basin Chamber, and a couple of little stones in the and the wall became loose, so those were put back in place. And um, so uh, what we use is photographs. We have photographs going back to about 1920 on the site. So if anything has been damaged since the early photographs, we can kind of tell how to restore it or rebuild it if a small piece of the wall comes apart. Um, but there were prehistoric earthquakes um, and also historic ones going back. We know one in 1727 off Cape Ann, which is in Massachusetts, was extremely strong. It was it was it, it knocked down houses, it caused a lot of fire, especially with kerosene lamps and lanterns, uh, candles in houses and stuff at that time. But it was an extremely severe uh, earthquake and it's about maybe about thirty miles from where the where the site is. And there are chambers where the roofs have collapsed today. You can go up and see the chamber in ruins. The six thousand pound roof slab is still falling into the structure. The lintel stone is still on the bottom of the structure that weighs about a thousand pounds. And there's some other chambers that you can see that are damaged, and they probably were damaged in the past, you know, well before, um, you know, even a historic period, you know, going back into, you know, a 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. I'm sure there were some severe earthquakes back then that caused mm -hmm. a lot of the damage. And we can't really tell what the site looks like, you know, exactly, but it's more of an educated guess. You know, if rocks were a couple feet from a structure, they were put back on top of that wall kind of thing back then. And that was done mostly in the 1930s, so we're not sure that that restoration work was done exactly correct. 
you never can be totally sure on that unless you have photographs, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because people often assume when somebody has custodianship over these archaeological sites that, oh, sure, they just move the stones. You know, Dennis or his father, Robert, you know, they just pick stones up from other people's properties or your own to make them, you know, align. Talk to us about that. You know, this whole notion that debunkers will often throw out of none of this is authentic, that it's all been manhandled, and what's not their current, you know, users put in place to make it seem something other than what it is. Right, yeah, I think that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, innate errors, that kind of thing, or debunkers, and, um, you know, they think that the site was built historically, you know, by somebody in the last couple hundred years. Uh, we have 16 carbon datings that have been, you know, done on the site starting in 1966. We also have the astronomical research that began in 1967, and in 1973, they began surveying the astronomical alignments. And by 1977, they sent his data into the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, their computer down in Cambridge, Mass. And you could probably do it on your cell phone today. Your smartphone probably could do the calculations. But what they wanted to know is, are these uh, stone monoliths aligned with anything? And if they are, do they work? You know, And if they work, when did they work? So the results in 1978 we got back from them was that if these alignments were used for astronomical purposes, they will work about 1800 uh, B.C. plus or minus about two centuries. And the reason for that is Earth's tilt is also changing. The obliquity is 23 degrees, 27 minutes. And it goes through a swing of about 22 degrees, 40 minutes, up to about 24 degrees, 20 minutes, over 41,000 years. So you have the precession of the equinoxes, which is just under 26,000 years. You mentioned that earlier. And that that actually changes a pole star because yeah. Thuban, as you mentioned, would have been a pole star uh, around 5,000 and even around 4,000 years ago. It was very close to being the pole star. And Draco is a dragon or a serpent. That's why we wonder if some of these these um, snake walls mm-hmm. were kind of because of that constellation. Ancient cultures kind of well, you know, and that. for people that don't know that pole star, it's so interesting because when the Great Bear, which is our current pole star star near Polaris, you know, and so we talk about the Great Bear, the Big Dipper, and the Little Dipper, but when Thuban, or Thuban, I guess that's how you pronounce it, which is Mm -hmm. in the constellation Draco, or Draco, the dragon, um, it was the prominent pole star, and in the future, I think it's so interesting, around 5200 CE, as I recall, it moves to something called Gamma Cephi, or Alri, which is from Arabic, meaning a shepherd or shepherd's dog. And I've often thought, well, maybe that's the messianic age that all the traditions speak of. But so when it was the Thuban was the pole star, that's about the time that this was built. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah, and the Great Pyramid of Cheops is about 4,600 years old, and the shaft that points would be Thuban. And it was very, very close to being polar. Because as time goes on, as the procession continues, it becomes circumpolar, and then it just becomes a rising and setting star. And then for a period, there's no pole star, and then it becomes a pole star with Polaris, I think around the time of Columbus, where it became pretty close to being a pole star rather than circumpolar. It Mm -hmm. wobbles still a little bit. In the future, you mentioned one star, and then I know in 13,000 years, Vega will be the pole star, and then it repeats itself going back around again. So in 26,000 years, it will be Polaris again, you know. Exactly, and I I did some research. The pole star position returns to Little Bear in twenty seven thousand eight hundred CE, just around the corner. You know that'll be the next group of wonderful uh, humans who come in as caretakers together. All right, so when you look at this, talk to us a bit about the carbon dating because you know at least that's something somewhat physically reliable. Right. Yeah, we started carbon dating in nineteen sixty six, and we found about sixteen of them. 
And people say, can you date the rock? And there's uh, geological, you know, like potassium argon. There's different types of datings you can do in the rock. But what we're really interested in is when the structures were built. When was the rocks stacked on top of, you know, each stone was stacked on top of one another. And um, so what we dated was charcoal, and in one case it was a piece of root. And there's a chamber in ruins I mentioned earlier. It's a rec- actually a trapezoidal-shaped structure, and it has core building in the corners, which is that inverted kind of staircase, you know, uh, technique of building a wall. And we never realized that until last year that the structure is not only trapezoidal in shape, we thought it was rectangular, but it has a core belling in three of the four walls. We thought the oracle chamber was the only structure up there with true core belling. And that's that arch kind of shape to the ceiling. It kind of bridges that distance. But that structure has it, and they actually have like a stone footing that the structure was built on. Well, we found through uh, 1967 on the first excavation on the north wall on the outside of it, was a piece of root growing through the wall. It was from a white pine tree. And in the 1930s, you could still see the stump. We have photographs of the stump from that time period. We had a professional photographer working with the first archaeologist at that time. His name is Malcolm Pearson. He just died a couple of years ago at 99 years old. But um, So he was a professional photographer all his life, so he photographed the site before the work actually began in the 30s of a lot of the restoration. So you asked that question earlier, what did the site look like? At least we have those photographs. Mm-hmm. But the pine tree through the chamber, and it was estimated at that time, and it went to the Scientific American magazine and also in the New England Quarterly magazine, a story about our site. And the author said that although the Patty family, there was a uh, Patty family were uh, five generations of shoemakers, and the third generation was living on the site. And some people said, well, they must have built the whole thing. But um, they said, well, that maybe the site was built by the Patties, but this root looks from a stump. Actually, the stump was there appears to have been growing there since six, you know, the 1600s because of its state of decay and its diameter. It was very rotted, so you couldn't do general chronology. You know, the actual tree ring dating was impossible because it was so rotted. But they estimated its age, and in 1967, 30 years later, they got a piece of root out of the wall, and they sent it to Geochrome Laboratories in Cambridge, Mass. The results was it was growing there in 1690, and that predates the Patty family being there. So you don't build a wall or a structure around the tree. The tree penetrates through the walls, and that's... Mm-hmm. That was in '69. They went down and they found um, some charcoal, and they dated that to 3,000 years. And the stratigraphy next to the wall was not broken. It was like very slow accumulation of soil, and you had the different color bands against the wall. So we knew that nobody dug that up, nobody disturbed it, and we were able to date kind of a layer from probably either a man-made or a natural forest fire actually dated that layer up against the wall, and that dated to 3,000 years. And in 1971, they went down further still, and they found another uh, couple charcoal samples, sent that off, and it came back 4,000 years old, plus or minus about 250 years. Uh, in that mix, they found hammer stones, rubbing stones, stone scrapers, and stone spallings. These are little chips. So when these people were actually shaping these stones, like the big roof slabs and the other stones, they would knock off little stone flakes as they were striking it, that percussion That's flake. what you call it, right, uh-huh. Yeah, so... And below that, the interesting thing was the bedrock had been quarried by somebody, by these original builders. He actually quarried off the bedrock, then they built the wall, and then soil accumulates against the wall with the, the stone tools and the uh, charcoal and eventually the piece of root later in time. And um, so that was uh, 1967 through 69, and then after that we took pavin datings of other different features on the site. But that 4,000-year-old date is still the oldest one on the main site. We have a up here, um, a fire pit, that, uh, we believe it's a fire pit that was um, close to the North Stone, 
and that's just on the lines of Polaris today and Dubin 4,000 years ago. But the fire pit was about 15 feet away from it, so it did not date the North Stone when it was stood up. But what it did date was um, a middle archaic time period of 7,400 years. It looks like somebody was building a campfire in that same area, even though they, they weren't responsible, we don't think, for any of the stonework. We can't really prove that. We think there was somebody up there actually at that early time period having some sort of a campfire. So people ask, was anybody here 4,000 years ago? In fact, they may have been up there even earlier than that. So we have human activity on top of the hill going back to about almost 7,500 years from that particular fire pit. But the North Stone actually has been um, dated, too. There's a fire pit that was found in front of that, and that's when that, uh, the president of the Hampshire Archaeological Society joined us in 1989, and that was a three-year project. They actually excavated in that front of that North Stone, and they found the fire pit that dated to 1600, um, let's see, 600 A.D., so about 1,400 years old. And what they found out is that the stone was stood up first, and then this fire pit came along at a later time. So the first feature is the stone was stood up, and then later the fire pit was, you know, somebody built a campfire in front of it. If it had been the other way around where the fire pit was there and then somebody came along in a colonial period and stood up the stone, you would have actually dug into the fire pit. You would have disturbed the layers of strata there by putting a hole there and put the stone up, you know, it would have disturbed the whole thing. So the earlier feature was stone standing, a later feature was a fire pit. And it could have been thousands of years after the stone was stood up, so it's kind of a minimum date. Yeah. But somebody was building a fire right in front of that north stone using it as a backstop. Well, you know, it reminds me very much of modern renovation. We often think of, you know, we're the only ones who take old buildings and upgrade them. You know, So this was, in a sense, a historic site. And if somebody used it, particularly because you mentioned, and we'll come back to it, there's a glacial cliff shelter. And wherever there's these cliff shelters, there's people who use them throughout history over many, many different time periods. If you're just joining us, Dennis Stone is our guest, caretaker of America Stonehenge in New Hampshire, where he grew up. They also have a new, and we'll talk about that, an archaeological team working on the Hill. You can learn more at www.stonehengeusa.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Dennis Stone is our guest. We're talking about America's Stonehenge in Salem, New Hampshire. You can learn more online at www.stonehengeusa.com. And there's a solstice celebration. I suppose that's on the solstice of the 21st, Dennis? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we'll have it on the 21st. And, uh, again, hopefully the weather is good. Uh, it was 46 years ago that we saw it for the first time in 1970. Although we started to work in 1967, it took us three years because of the New England weather to actually witness the uh, sunset. It was snowing or whatever, cloudy the other, the other three years prior to that. So... It's kind of an anniversary of that, uh, 46 years ago with my dad and a couple other researchers. And as we stood there watching it, the sun came down beautifully over the stone. We took a lot of photographs, and we thought, gee, the first time maybe anybody's seen this in perhaps thousands of years. So it was uh, kind, of, kind of a neat event for us. What is it that attracts you to this kind of work? I mean, obviously, you grew up, and there's some sort of soul <laughs> resonance that your yeah. dad started this. And by the way, thank you. I did receive a copy of the book he wrote with David Goodsward entitled American Stone America's Stonehenge. Oh, great. I'm glad it came to you because of the holiday. It's very busy with the postal service, so I'm glad uh, that it got to you Yes, thank you. Yeah, I guess I guess I had to get involved with it because of my dad, you know. And he was uh, an AT&T engineer when he got involved with this. He had a new family. He had built a new house. Uh, he actually did a lot of the building by himself. And he was in college at the time, too. But he worked at AT&T Bell Laboratories for 30 more years. He had just got the job when he heard about this place. So he had his, his plate full. 
And, uh, and then I went into the airlines. When I, I was an airline pilot for 35 years, and I just retired this year. So I, March 4th was my final uh, uh, day of employment with the airline. And so uh, I had, I've had more time now to uh, work on this, and we're writing a book, actually. So we're hoping to have the book out next year. Cause my oh, that's exciting. Book, yeah, my dad's book is very good, uh, but it came out around 2000. It came out over 10 years ago, and he passed away seven years ago. So we, we feel we found so many different things up there. It's probably time for, a, a, you know, an updated book on the place, you know. So we're, we're kind of working on that now. And, well, uh, well now there I'm, are I'm, things <laughs> like it that, you know, remind one of the Grange in Ireland, which actually we visited as a family, and it was fascinating. Um, but why is it important? You know, sometimes people say, well, so what? <laughs> you know, all right, 4,000 years ago, somebody built this site, and they could, you know, measure the solstice and the equinox. Why was that important, and why is it important? Well, Newgrange is uh, an incredible site, too, and as you know, and my dad and I visited that back in 83, and it's been on, you know, a lot of restoration work was done to that, you know, and that question about our site having restoration work. A lot of these ancient sites, they just fall victim to, uh, you know, damage from time, from natural causes, you know, from people, and over in Ireland, like if you saw Nelton Delta right down the street from there, uh, they were kind of damaged because, uh, you know, they were actually recycling the uh, material into roads. You know, mm-hmm. you see a crater in the middle of Delta, I think it is. It's like, what was that? Well, that's like all the gold that got stripped off yeah. the Great Pyramid to oh, yeah. ornamental whatever, wherever. In the limestone, too, you know, that capped it. You know, it was a beautiful uh, surface on the, on the pyramids. And that was all, I think for Alexandria, I think they stole it and moved it way over there. But uh, a lot of these sites have been damaged because of that. But um, uh, so... Yeah, I mean, our site has undergone the same thing, you know, with damage and restoration work. And uh, I'm sorry, the question, I, I forgot well, the question. Well, it's, it's, you know, people often will say, okay, it's fascinating to see that there were these prehistoric cultures that had extraordinarily complex appreciation of astronomy and archaeoastronomy. I mean, we're not just talking about, gee, they watched the stars move. They really understood how long these, you know, enormous cycles of 26,000 years or more um, took and and how it affected events on Earth, and so people often say, "Well, so what?" So they knew that the solstice was on a certain date, and they knew the equinoxes. But obviously, then other than agriculture and perhaps knowing how long they had before they would plant their seed, or how long they would have to harvest the crop and this and, and use it that way as agricultural cycles, it's obvious when you look at all these cultures there was something much more significant to them going on when they participated in observing the solstices and the equinoxes that today modern men and women don't do. Hmm. Well, yeah, they definitely expressed their knowledge in stone, you know, like Stonehenge in England. It's a great example of that, or even Newgrange. And I think that's right, too, you know. And the earlier people, hunter-gatherers, had to know when the migrations of animals were, you know, so keeping track of time has always been a preoccupation, I think, of man. And uh, but a lot of the um, stars, constellations, the sun, moon were, I guess, many cultures thought of them as gods, kind of an honor to the gods too. You know, something a tribute. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a gateway to another kind of yeah. consciousness for certain. Yeah, and it seems to be a worldwide thing. No matter, you know, megalithic sites. Um, I I knew that they were on. You know, I know there were. We have um, in the northeast, we have megalithic type sites, and they're at fifty thousand in Europe, and they go into Russia, they go into uh, China, India, Korea had over a hundred thousand megalithic sites. Um, and then they're in, um, I just found out this year, they're in Australia. There's a, uh, they Google that, it's Australia Stonehenge, and it's an amazing place. Uh, it's not well known. In fact, I met two couples, two families from Australia at a 
museum this year, and it was kind of neat to talk to them from the other side of the world, but they were not aware of that. So I pulled it up on our computer in our visitor center and showed it to them, and they said, gosh, that place is right down near where our, our daughter lives. And another one says, yeah, we have another relative that lives nearby there, and they never heard of that. And in South America, you know, there's, um, Ecuador has these megalithic-type sites, and they're in, I believe, in Colombia, but you Google Amazon Stonehenge, uh, it's a, another really cool place. I found out about that last year. So uh, six out of um, seven continents seem to have these structures, you know. And so it's not something unique totally. Um, you know, it well, to and, world, and I but, think also it's important to mention, you know, there are different inscriptions. There's Phoenician, as you point mm-hmm. out, Iberian Punic script, and Dr. Barry Fell of mm-hmm. Harvard University, as I mentioned, who had been on our program when he was alive, did extensive work on the inscriptions found there. Oh, okay, you had Dr. Barry Phil. I think he died in 94, so he was on there quite a while ago. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's pretty neat, yeah. Uh, we first met him in 1975, and, uh, you know, he wrote America B.C., as you mentioned, and Saga America and uh, Bronze Age America. And he came to our site many, many times during the 70s. Uh, even up to the end, he was still talking to us. I think he had moved to San Diego for his health, but he taught at Harvard for 20, I think over 20 years at Harvard University. Um but he had, you know, he had the Epigraphic Society, over 1,200 members looking at these markings all around the world, particularly up in the Northeast, you know, in Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts. Um, and at our site, he, he identified markings that we had found in the uh, mid-1960s. We put them in our museum on display. Three of them came out of that chamber in ruins. Uh, 1964, they were going to try to get the roof slab out of there. And that lintel stone I mentioned, they weren't successful. They didn't have equipment. They didn't have the time or money to do it. But they did start cleaning it, and they found... Two of the stones in 64 put them on display in our museum, and then the third one was found in 67 near the entrance of the structure. And he identified two of them. Uh, one of them is Iberian Punic, as you mentioned, and the other one is Libyan. And the Phoenician one said that it was a sun temple dedicated to Baal on behalf of the Canaanites because the Phoenicians were the Canaanites. Um, and uh, the other one we found was Celtic. We found uh, Celtic markings. And particularly up in Vermont, but we did find the sun symbol that was Celtic, he said, at our site, and also um, one that said bell or ball. It was like one line down, and it's Ogham, so it has one of the five lines above or below a stem line, and it had uh, one line and then two lines next to it below the stem line. He said, well, that's, that's bell, and that's the Celtic sun god, and he said, well, ball and bale and bellos are all the same, the same god, you know. So and and it's interesting because I, I saw in one of your notes um, for tonight's discussion, you commented that there's an Ibex petroglyph and that these animals weren't in North America at the time of these structures. Right. I think the Ibex, yeah, they call it the deer carving. That was found in the 1930s by Mr. Goodwin, the first researcher, and Malcolm Pearson photographed it. But it looks more like an Ibex. An Ibex uh, is a European animal. Some people say in Africa, but I, every time I look it up, it's uh, an animal found in Europe. And it looks more like that kind of an antler because of the antler, the shape of the antler. And it's found in the Oracle Chamber, which is the largest chamber still in existence at the um, site. It, um, it's kind of a Y-shaped structure. If you look down at it, it has a Oracle tube that goes through to the sacrificial table. It's about a six-foot long tube. And if you yell through this tube, the voice comes out under the table. And if you stand above the table on a ramp, you can hear this voice coming out. And it reminds me of what we saw in, in Malta back in 1997. We spent a week in Malta looking at some of the ancient megalithic sites. And they had a similar setup there with a kind of a hole in the wall, and people would speak through it, and people hearing this thought it was the Spirit of God talking to them, um, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. And in Delphi in Greece, my wife and I went on a honeymoon up there, and they had something kind of similar to that. So 
uh, ancient cultists did practice that kind of thing. But that chamber has five closets. It has two carvings, one of the deer you mentioned. It has a core belling. It has a stone seat. It has two underground drains, and it has a bed. And it had a chimney that had two stone louvers, and these louvers you could adjust the draft. But they were stolen the first year we were open in 1958. We opened up the place, and then right after that, somebody walked away with them, you mm. know. So all we have is photographs today of these two stone louvers. You know, what shoemaker or early settler does that kind of thing? And the chamber's about 30 feet long, and actually it has a branch that goes out to the east. And it was actually not an exit, but a window that faces kind of the winter solstice uh, sunrise direction. And that's where the deer carving is. Mm. And what we always wondered, we got to get more trees out of there because there's still a bit of a forest up there today, is... Um, whether the sun illuminates the deer on a certain moment. Oh, that's some interesting. The, yeah, some of these states do that around the world, you know, in Colorado and West Virginia where Mark lives and Chaco Canyon's one that people are aware of, the sun dagger, and that kind of, that kind of an illumination effect. It's kind of cool. And the Newport Tower in Rhode Island does that, too. Is there anything, we have about a minute less, is there oh, anything yeah. <laughs> that really interests you that you've not yet been able to solve that you're going, this is what I want to know? Yeah, we want to know who built the site, basically. Uh, <laughs> that's something, I mean, really seriously, and what we want to do is use more of the modern technologies. They have that um, new dating technology. It's called um, optically stimulated luminescence. You can actually date dirt, not charcoal. You don't need that. When you do a date, you know, you have to find charcoal, and not, you can't always find it, but you can always find dirt. And you can actually send these dirt cores to a laboratory, and they can tell you how long that dirt's been next to the wall undisturbed. You know, you try to get down near the bottom of the walls, whether it's a stone wall or a stone structure. And the solar cell testing cost over $1,000 a sample, and they just did it on a chamber in Massachusetts that Malcolm Pearson's family actually had. I'm going to need to say thank you and good night. Let me encourage our audience to follow up with you at www.stonehengeusa.com. And when you find out who built it, please let us know. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.